Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. In the reading from Corinthians this morning, Paul tells us that Jesus' good news of the inbreaking kingdom of God, the very kingdom that was arriving in him, had been released in the world. Released in a way that everyone could see and behold. Released in a way that everyone could be embraced by. But then Paul says, if this good news is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. To those who've been blinded from seeing the radiant light that's breaking into the world in Jesus. The one who is the very image of God the one who is the fullness of God, the one who in his very face we see God's glory. Whenever, um, since September of last year, whenever I hear the word perishing, I can't hear it any way other than um, the day that Miska and I began our 20th anniversary walking tour on the Kerry Way in Ireland. And we were walking 14 miles from Killarney, to Black Valley, and the first hour and a half was just wonderful. Um, It was cool, but there was no rain, and there was magnificent vistas, and soon after that, the magnificent vistas stayed, but there was all kinds of rain, and we pulled on our gear, and we walked for the rest of the day absolutely getting drenched, and I thought I had fantastic gear, but it held up for about three hours, and then I was just soaked. And we finally get to the Shamrock House, and of course it had to be named the Shamrock House. It was a little farm that had a B&B. It was, what we found out was basically an Irish granny who had three rooms that she let out in her house. And we come, we come to, the, to the door and knock on the door and we're shivering and just totally drenched and the door creaks open and this dear woman shuffles forward and she sees us and she says, oh, are you perishing? (laughs) I know that I absolutely butchered that accent. I take a lot of grief for that at home. But it was a beautiful moment. She pulled us in and she had us get our clothes, uh, our overclothes off, and she, um, then we went to our room and tra- changed the dry clothes. She took all of our clothes, and she, of course, put them over the hearth and the fireplace and our boots. And uh, that moment, now, in our, you know, between Miska and me, there'll be these moments where it's like, things are really hard. We're looking at her like, are you perishing? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. This, this word perishing in the scripture means for our life to be ebbing out of us. The illuminating and renewing life of Jesus, it upends and remakes the life that we thought we knew. And to see this Jesus is to finally see the fullness of God's life that is now possible for us. It's a life that previously seemed impossible, and because God has revealed a new reality to us, a new way of being, a new kingdom, a new humanity, because God has revealed to us the full, uh, Jesus has revealed to us the fullness of God, new things are possible. But it's true that to spurn this life is to be blinded to this renewing, restoring, generative light 
it is to see our life slowly fade. Now, some people take this to be immediately talking about like an eternity in hell, and it, it, it doesn't really seem like that's exactly what Paul's saying. He's, he's simply saying the reality that we hear over and again in the scriptures that when we turn away from the one who is light and life, the essence of us begins to ebb away. If we want to truly live and be whole and be healed, we come to the one who is whole, who is the healer, and that is Christ. For it is this God, this healing, revealing, illuminating God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. This one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you see the face of Christ, and obviously we don't know what that face looks like, and it's probably not the face that most of us grew up with in our picture Bibles. It's not white Jesus. We don't know what the face of Jesus exactly looked like, but the face of Jesus is the one that revealed to us the way God welcomes humanity. The way God in Jesus speaks truth into humanity. The way God in Jesus welcomes all of us home. So what is this life that Jesus makes possible? What does the arrival of this kingdom of God look like? What does it actually mean to be rescued from a life that is perishing, a life that is ebbing away? To be rescued from that life and to be healed, to made whole, to be renewed. This life that is radiant by God's own life. What does it mean then to truly be human if Jesus reveals to us both what God is like and what true humanity is like. Well, last year during Lent, we uh, walked through the seven deadly sins. This year, what we're going to do is walking through the Beatitudes. Because these are the very questions that Jesus answers in that sermon that the Beatitudes are the beginning of, that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. This expansive, explosive sermon where Jesus is telling us what new kingdom life is like, what the possibilities are like if God has really entered into the world and removes what is perishing and restores us to life that is new. What does it look like? It's the reality of God's life arriving in Jesus, and it means that our entire life is completely remade, entirely reimagined, top to bottom. And to do that, we're going to have to abandon almost everything that we think we know. Almost every self-sufficient way that we've arranged and managed our life. Every way we've come to believe that the real world works. The life that Jesus announces really does turn everything topsy-turvy. This is the way that the sermon begins. And this is where we're going to spend our time for the next eight weeks. When Jesus saw the crowds, he wept. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's another passage. <laughs> he went. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we read these blessings, we can hear how the life that Jesus brings really does turn everything upside down. To pass a blessing is to pronounce goodness and well-being over someone. And do you notice that in these blessings, Jesus is calling well exactly the opposite of ones that we assume to be blessed and well. I'm not sure we'll hear the Beatitudes right if we don't get the orientation of what Jesus seems to be doing here. It doesn't seem to be a litmus test telling us what we need to do in order to be blessed. So that we come through this passage and we find every kind of person that's blessed and we try to figure out exactly how to go and be that so that we too can earn God's blessing. Rather, it's a provocative pronouncement of the shocking reality that the exact people we assume to be at the bottom of the pile are actually ones who are included in God's blessing. This blessing is something God does. It's something that Jesus makes possible in ways that were not possible or imaginable to us before. So we might should not immediately jump to trying to figure out how to go and do all these things so that we can be blessed. Though there's something absolutely here because we have much to learn from the poor and the mourners and the pure in heart. But the emphasis the emphasis is not on their poverty or mourning or purity. It's rather on Jesus's insane, subversive blessings. This is a pronouncement of grace. This is a pronouncement that says, you whom are, you are assumed to be outside the blessing, you are absolutely inside the blessing. I like the way David Gushy puts this. Jesus is not saying, happy are those who mourn because mourning makes them virtuous and then they will get the reward that virtuous people deserve, but rather good news to those who mourn because God is gracious and God is acting to deliver us from our sorrows. If you read the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, and in just a few moments we're gonna talk about our practices as a community during Lent, if you join us in that, you're going to read these chapters multiple times during Lent. 
If you read Matthew chapter 5, particularly the Beatitudes, and you read it next to Isaiah 61, the prophecy of the one who is to come from God to be the redeemer of Israel and the world, if you read these two things together, they line up really beautifully. The one who has come to God is the one who comes to set the captives free, the one who comes to those who are mourning, to comfort those who are in sorrows. And this is precisely what Jesus has come to do. The Beatitudes, with the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, are not merely providing a new ethical system for human behavior, but rather they're reimagining what it means to be a human, what it means to truly live. What does it mean to be the kind of person who has received from Jesus a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone? What it means to be indwelled by God's spirit so that a new kind of life erupts in us and around us and among us. The Beatitudes imagine for us that our life is not isolated. Our life is not lived by myself. It's not merely our effort to improve improve ourselves that gives us the good life. Rather, the good life is made possible by Jesus by the Holy Spirit, by the one who is to us the brilliance and radiance of God shining in the face of Jesus. It's lived out within a community that has within it all of these unexpected gifts and blessings of God's diverse people. So those that we say are not blessed, those that certainly in much of Israel's theology, they would have assumed were not blessed, the ones that God was not showing God's favor to. Jesus shows up and says, it is precisely these people to whom God is showing God's blessing. Stanley Hauerwas says, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of a way of life of a people, a people of a new age that results from following this Jesus. Each of the Beatitudes names a gift. Isn't that odd to think of it as a gift? But it is not presumed that everyone who is a follower of Jesus will possess each Beatitude. Rather, the gifts named in the Beatitudes suggest that the diversity of these gifts will be present in the community of those who have heard Jesus' call to discipleship. Indeed, to learn to be a disciple is to learn why we are dependent on those who mourn or those who are meek. The life that God brings to us and the blessings that Jesus enacts are connected to the actual, immediate realities of our life. When Jesus arrives and says, this is the subversive word of the kingdom of God, he's not painting some abstract picture of some distant future, he is talking about their very moment, their actual life. It's not about some religious platitude. It's about our jobs, our families, our heartbreaks, our questions, our politics, our longings, our injustices, our failures, our rebellion, our hopelessness, our loves. The blessings that Jesus pronounced It's really interesting. It doesn't seem like it was like this ready-made list 
that he just wanted to make sure he hit all these highlights. In some ways, he was actually responding to the actual people who were there listening to the sermon. Right before chapter uh, the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, when he saw the crowds, so who, who were those crowds? Well, in a couple of verses prior, it tells us who these crowds were. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, Judea, and the rain across the region across Judea, and all of them followed him. It was these very people who were coming with heartaches and heartbreaks and hopes and sorrows and pain and political dislocation, and they were coming to Jesus, and Jesus said, you are the blessed. The one he begins with is, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says the poor, so it can end any argument about whether it's just the real poor economically, or it's those who are poor in a myriad of ways. It's all of us. Blessings on you if you're poor. If you're here this morning and you are constantly under the strain of the economy, if you're constantly facing bills that have red stamps on them, if you feel like you cannot get out from under the pressure of what it means to live in this expensive world in which we are. If you are one who has very little and you're caught in a world where there is so, so much, Jesus says, blessing to you. If you are one who feel absolutely impoverished of spirit, if you feel that you have absolutely nothing actually to bring to a friendship, nothing to bring to God, nothing to bring to this world, if your heart is broken by a marriage or a friendship or some deep pain that you have kept to yourself for years and years and years, and you say, I am absolutely broken and spent, I have nothing to offer, nothing to give. I am done. I am ruined. I have nothing. You are the one who Jesus says, blessed. And not blessed because you're about to straighten things up, not blessed because it's all about to turn up. It's because God is with those who are poor. From the Old Testament to the New, God's heart is with the poor. And it is absolutely true that particularly in the Old Testament, it is those who are economically bereft. It is those who have been crushed by the system. It is those who have been taken advantage of. 
It is those who have had poverty passed on generation to generation. It is those who've been oppressed and had what is rightfully theirs taken away. God comes alongside the poor. And as followers of Jesus, we need the poor among us. Because Jesus is with the poor, and because all of us, in one way or another, are poor. Glenn Stassen says, the poor are blessed not because their virtue is perfect, but because God especially, especially does want to rescue the poor. It's those who are poor in every way. It's the humble ones, the ones who have little to offer, the ones who are no longer enamored by their pedigree or their financial resources, by their experience, by who they know, by the names they can drop, by the degrees behind their name. It's the ones who might be considered bumblers. Do we have room for bumblers? God, I hope so. It's the ones few people would look to whenever you want a question answered. It's not the first people you go to when you need to raise funds. And God says, the kingdom of God is yours. We may act as if the kingdom is ours, but God says, the kingdom of God is yours. Often, not always, we each have our stories, but often, those of us who are poor in one way or the other, if we've listened to that pain, we're the ones who've learned by the hard knocks of life that our ingenuity and our wrangling cannot rescue us. We no longer live by the bootstraps mentality. We know it's mostly a farce. We've grappled with our hubris. But those of us who still hold the keys to the world, those of us who still have a really firm grasp on our power, those of us who are deluded into thinking that our life is our own, if that's who we are, it is really difficult to hear God's invitation to abandon our life. It's really hard to hear God's good news that we can receive a radical new life that's available to us, that's far superior to the life that we're clinging to. A life that doesn't consist of what we can make of it. A life that's never measured by all the metrics that we are taught from day one to assume measure our life. It's incontrovertible, right? This is the way the world works. We measure our life by our economic resources, our vibrant health, our remarkable reputation, our successful career, our stunning bodies, our enlightened social consciousness, our noble moral code, our impressive religious certitude. These are the things that measure our life. And the kingdom of God says, hogwash. That's not exactly what it says, but it's very similar to that, hogwash. Jesus' blessings subvert all of this. 
Everything that we've assumed is the bedrock of human existence, Jesus turns it upside down. If you are the poor, and what age in history have the poor not been pushed away and pushed down and assumed to have nothing to offer and they're merely the fodder for the rest of us to grind and get what we want? It is precisely to those who are poor that the kingdom of God says, you are blessed. If that's true, if we can believe that to be true, then we don't need to fear poverty because poverty no longer defines us. Why are we so afraid of not having enough? Jesus, in the ultimate act of poverty on a cross, opened up a new possibility for humanity. As one teacher puts it, Jesus' poverty has made it possible for a people to exist who can live dispossessed of possessions. Because Jesus was the ultimate man of poverty, Jesus' people can be a people who do not fear being poor. In some ways, and I don't know if this is right, um, but maybe it is, in some ways it seems like the rest of the Beatitudes sort of flesh out this first line. There are different ways of being poor. And this is a new life. It's made possible because the light has shone in the darkness, because the glory of God has been made visible in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who is poor. The one who more than any of us have ever known has mourned. The one who in ways that shock and surprise us We may have to relearn the word, but the one who was the meek one. The one who more than any other hungered and thirst for righteousness. The one who more than any other human who has ever lived was the merciful one. The one who was pure in heart. The one who, to his very core, was the ultimate peacemaker. The one who more than any other person who has ever lived was persecuted because of righteousness. Because Jesus has been such a human and invited us into such a new kind of humanity, a new way of living that is made possible because the Holy Spirit makes it possible within us and within the community of God's people, we can be free. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.